Romans. The book of Romans. We're going to be turning together to Romans chapter 6. As we continue working our way verse by verse through this book of the Bible. This is sermon number 81 in the book of Romans, if you're keeping count. So we've been here a while. Uh, Of course, we didn't do all that at one time. Uh, We've spent many months in Genesis and breaks in between. Um, I hope you are finding this letter to be a real blessing. Uh, Many people call it their favorite book of the Bible. Um, I think if I had to choose, it would probably be my favorite. And I hope maybe you're seeing why it's such a blessing to so many Christians' lives. Please feel free to use one of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, we want you to see the text as we preach um, because this is the Word of God and uh, we want you to see what God says for yourself. Um, Using the Bibles we've provided, you'll find this on page 943. I want to read um, beginning in verse 19, uh, stopping where we we, uh, stopped last Sunday evening, picking up there and going through verse 23. So verses 19 through 23 of Romans 6. Here's what we read. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness... So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have often warned against a kind of preaching that seeks to entertain rather than to open up and explain the truths of God. I have often spoken in a very negative way about preachers whose sermons follow the pattern of tell a few jokes, read a verse of Scripture, then share some tear-jerking stories, and then call for people to walk an aisle. Well, this morning I do want to use this opportunity to bring some balance to those statements. Yes, preachers should not be seeking to fill their sermons with jokes and stories for the sake of filling their sermons with jokes and stories. Our our goal as pastors should be to preach the sobering truths of the Word of God. Our goal is not to get people to like us. Our goal is to preach the truth. That does not mean that there can never be humor in a sermon. And if a preacher is by nature a humorous guy, and I wish I was more so, I'm not and I'm sorry, But if if a preacher is by nature a humorous guy, it will often be that that's going to come out as that preacher preaches. A good example is Spurgeon. 
Uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermons are absolutely targeted on helping people understand the Word of God. Spurgeon was not seeking to entertain. But you cannot help but read his sermons without seeing how funny he could be at various times. Sometimes a joke can be used to help people make sense of a passage of Scripture. And so there is a balance here. The real question is this. Is the preacher's goal to help the listeners understand the Word of God? Or is the preacher's goal to entertain? One kind of preacher will be feeding the flock. The other kind of preacher will be causing the congregation to be interested and laughing, but they will remain immature. Now, the same kind of thing can be said for stories. Folks, Jesus told lots of stories in His teaching. But Jesus did not tell stories for the sake of being known as a great storyteller. Jesus told stories because those stories helped Him to communicate spiritual truths. There were spiritual principles that were difficult for His disciples to understand. Stories were a tool in the toolbox of the Lord Jesus Christ to help bring difficult truths closer to the understanding of His followers. Now that wasn't His only purpose. His disciples once asked Him why He spoke in parables. And Jesus answered, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. In other words, Jesus' parables were meant to help His disciples understand spiritual truths while keeping those same spiritual truths hidden from those without ears to hear or eyes to see. But the point is that Jesus told stories for a spiritual purpose. He was not after being a celebrity. He was after serving the people He was speaking to in love. We could talk about analogies. Many of Jesus' parables in actuality were analogies. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. Right? The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. So Jesus would use these analogies, these word pictures in His preaching. And His apostles followed suit. A faithful preacher is one who cares most about helping God's people understand God's truth no matter what it takes. So jokes, stories, analogies, word pictures, explanatory uh, statements, logical syllogisms, whatever it is, these are all tools in a preacher's toolbox to help people understand the truths of God. And so my prayer as I prepare sermons each week, is that God will help me to know which tool to use in each passage, in each paragraph, in order to help you better grasp with your mind and your heart and feel with your soul the truth of this book. Because it is the Word of God. Now, all of these tools are good and helpful when they are used in the service of the glory of God. And all of these tools can be rotten and twisted when they're used in the service of the glory of a preacher. Now, 
I say all that because in Romans 6, what we have is Paul using one of the tools in his toolbox to help us understand a spiritual truth. Under the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul looks to his toolbox and pulls out one that will help us to grasp what he wants us to grasp. And in this case, the tool Paul chooses to use is an analogy. An analogy. In these verses, Paul is seeking to help Christians understand what their relationship to sin used to be like and what their relationship to righteousness is today. And the analogy that he uses is that of slavery. Slavery. Now I want you to notice in verse 19. Look at verse 19. I want you to notice that he says he is speaking in human terms. Human terms. He wants us to understand that he is taking spiritual truths and putting them into pictures we can grasp. All analogies have limits. All analogies fail somewhere. But he's using this picture of slavery to help get his point across. And what is that point? What is Paul teaching us in these verses with this picture of slavery? Well, let's begin with this. Underneath everything that Paul was saying in these verses, and that he has been saying in the last several verses to this point, is this reality. You are always a slave to something. You are always a slave to something. There is a kind of bondage in which all human beings find themselves. This is a bondage that unbelievers are in. This is a bondage that believers are in. This is a universal bondage. We are all slaves, each and every one of us, period. And what is this thing that all people are in bondage to? Well, most fundamentally, we are all in bondage to our wills. That is, we are all in bondage to our desires. Here is a fundamental truth about you. You do what you want. Is that not true? You do what you want to do. You obey your desires. You are here this morning because you want to be here this morning. Now, maybe you want to be here because you love being with your church family. I hope so. Maybe you want to be here because you feel like you have a duty to be here. Maybe you're here because you're a child and it was this or run away from home because your parents said you had to be here, right? But you had that option of resisting and fighting. You are here because you desire to be here for some reason. We obey our desires. In every situation, we obey our desires. Now, there are limits, of course. I might desire to to fly, right? But I can desire to fly all I want. I can't make myself jump up and fly, right? So I'm limited by my natural limitations. There are also times when, when desires within us clash. So I may have two competing desires. I'm going to obey one of them. The question is, which one of them am I going to obey? So for example, I may want to lose weight. 
I may also want a piece of that cake sitting on the counter. In that moment, I am going to obey one of those desires, whichever one is strongest in that moment. Thus, when we talk about self-denial, when we talk about saying no to certain desires, we must understand that we will never be able to say no to certain desires without trumping them with a greater desire. Does that make sense to everybody? In other words, you will never be able to say no to the piece of cake unless you have a greater desire to be healthy or to be fit. In the same way, you will never be able to say no to sinful desires unless you have a greater desire to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means the way to defeat sin is to cultivate love for the Lord Jesus Christ. You will always do what you want to do most at any moment. You will never say no to any desire unless you desire to say no to that desire because of a higher desire. Got it? Let me say it again. You will never say no to any desire unless you desire to say no to that desire because of a higher desire. This is similar to slavery because you cannot escape this bondage to your desires. Listen carefully. Even if you attempted right now to stop doing what you desire. In fact, you said, I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop obeying my desires. I'm going to start doing the opposite of what I desire. How would that work? Well, what you would find is that you're now doing the opposite of what you desire because you desire it. Right? So you cannot escape this bondage to your desires. It is a part of how God has made you. It is a part of human nature. You are wired to have wants, longings, and desires and to act on them. That is your nature. And that will never change. This slavery to our desires is not necessarily a bad thing. That we know it's not bad. God created us this way in the beginning and then pronounced us very good. This slavery to our desires only becomes bad when our desires are bad. When our desires are good, our slavery to our desires is a good thing. But it's when our desires are twisted and evil that our slavery to our desires becomes bad. And the problem with humanity is that we are under a curse and our wills and our desires have been corrupted by nature. Our desires are wicked. We seek to serve ourselves as idols rather than the glory of God. Listen very carefully to this. Freedom in Christ Jesus is not a freedom from your desires. Freedom in Christ Jesus is a great change in your heart that takes you from slavery to wicked desires into a slavery to pure desires. You understand the difference? You're not going to be free from your desires unless you cease being a human being because it's part of what makes you a human being. You will always have desires. To be free in Christ is to have those desires fundamentally changed in your heart 
from self-centered, self-absorbed, self-seeking desires to God-glorifying, Christ-exalting desires. This is what it means to be free. To no longer be bound to wickedness. There are now new desires in your heart. Desires rooted in faith. Desires that have the glory of God as their aim. And because those desires are there and growing, you can give yourself more and more to those desires. Now, think with me. You're in bondage to your desires. Your desires are in bondage to your loves. Your desires are in bondage to your loves. If you love food more than you ought to love food, then that love for food is going to create strong desires within you to overeat. If you love skinniness, perhaps even more than you ought to love skinniness, you will have a strong desire to abstain from anything that will take that away, perhaps even foods that you ought to be eating. If you love yourself more than you ought to love yourself, you will have strong desires within you that are all about self, desires to speak harshly and to harbor anger and vengeance in your heart when self is attacked. If you love God, if you love the glory of God, then you will have strong desires within you to do much for God and the glory of God. In other words, at the root of true Christian freedom is having a new love. A new love. When we come to treasure Christ above all else, we gain new desires. And when our desires change from desires to serve sin and self to desires to serve Christ and righteousness, that is true freedom. Slavery to the will of Christ is the greatest freedom of all. Now, with all that in mind is foundation. Look at verse 19. Look at verse 19. I want you to see the command, and the command is found in the second half of the verse. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Present your members as slaves to righteousness. Your members are the parts of your body. Your members are your eyes and your ears, your hands and your feet, your mind and your emotions. And Paul is calling us to give ourselves completely to righteousness. We are to present every part of ourselves to the service of righteousness and not a one-time thing. Continually, every day, presenting all that we are to righteousness. Happy submission to God. That's what Paul was teaching here. That's what Paul was commanding. Our offense in the war against sin. Give yourself to God every day. Be useful to God as a mighty weapon in His war against evil. Let your tongue bless, not curse. 
Let your hands be used skillfully in whatever calling God has placed upon your life. Let your feet take you to godly fellowship and to Christian worship and the homes of the sick and the hurting and not into wrong crowds and tempting situations. We are to give ourselves to the purposes of God, to the purposes of righteousness. Now, in the first part of verse 19, Paul tells you to do this just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. In other words, church, with the same zeal, with the same gusto that you used to give yourself to sin, now give yourself to God. Remember how you once gave yourself with such delight to desires that you now see were awful. You once found great joy in indulging your greed. Now find great joy in indulging your generosity. You once found great joy in pursuing the approval of others. Now find great joy in seeking the approval of Christ. God has given you a new purpose in life. Heaven is ahead of you. You are a part of His great plan for this world. With joy and peace in your heart, amazed at Christ's love for you, give all that you are fully and earnestly and energetically to the cause of righteousness. All right. Are you doing this? Take a moment and check yourself. Do you give yourself each and every day? You are either growing in holiness or you are growing in wickedness anew to the service of God and the cause of righteousness. Are you a slave of righteousness? affection, that you are now happily bound to work for the seeing His glory spread throughout our community and our world. Church, love Jesus above all and then do it. If you love Jesus above all and do as you please, what Paul adds to verse 19 a reason for obeying this command. Why should we give ourselves to the service of righteousness and not give ourselves to the service of sin? Well, it's it's as if he puts before us two roads. One is lawlessness. right? Lawlessness. This is the road of disobedience to God. This is the road of indulging in sin. So we have that road. Then we have a road that he calls righteousness. This is the road of obedience to God. This is the the road of living for God. If we are Christians, then by God's grace, at the cost of the blood of Christ, we have been taken off the road of lawlessness. We have been placed onto the road of obedience. And the command is, now walk that road. Don't try and go back to lawlessness. 
You've been taken from the service of sin into the service of righteousness. Why would you want to go back? Remember, Paul is still answering those people who want to say, now that we're under grace, let's sin all the more. And Paul is showing us how ludicrous that attitude is. How foreign that attitude is to true salvation. So, why? Why should we not want to go back to the road of sin? For some, it it looks kind of nice. Why should we be committed to walking the path of serving Christ and serving righteousness? Why should our hearts be saying, I will never go back there? Why? Well, look at where each road leads. Look at where each road leads. Take the road of lawlessness. Paul says, notice, it leads to greater lawlessness. Take the road of righteousness. Notice what he says. It leads to sanctification. Remember, the word sanctification comes from the word for holy. So sanctification is holification. It's it's us being made holy before God. So you have two ways of living. The road of lawlessness will lead you further away from being like Christ. But the road of righteousness will lead you into Christ-likeness. Give your body and your life to lawlessness and you will continue going down a dark spiral of disobedience until you are far away from God you will prove yourself not to be one of His. Give your body and your life to His service and you will become more and more like Him. There is a family resemblance between parents and children. And all people will know that you are God's because you are looking more and more like your Father as you give yourself to His service. Friends, this very moment, your life is headed in one of those two directions. You are either becoming more like Christ right now, or you are moving further and further away from Christ. Anew to the service of God and the cause of righteousness. Are you a slave of righteousness? affection that you are now happily bound to work for the seeing His glory spread throughout our community and our world church love Jesus above all and then do if you love Jesus above all and do as you please what going to Paul adds to verse 19 a reason for obeying this command. Why should we give ourselves to the service of righteousness and not give ourselves to the service of sin? Well, it's, it's as if he puts before us two roads. One is lawlessness. Right? Lawlessness. This is the road of disobedience to God. This is the road of indulging in sin. So we have that road. 
Then we have a road that he calls righteousness. This is the road of obedience to God. This is the, the, the road of living for God. If we are Christians, then by God's grace, at the cost of the blood of Christ, we have been taken off the road of lawlessness. We have been placed onto the road of obedience. And the command is, now walk that road. Don't try and go back to lawlessness. You've been taken from the service of sin into the service of righteousness. Why would you want to go back? Remember, Paul is still answering those people who want to say, now that we're under grace, let's sin all the more. And Paul is showing us how ludicrous that attitude is. How foreign that attitude is to true salvation. So, why? Why should we not want to go back to the road of sin? For some, it, it looks kind of nice. Why should we be committed to walking the path of serving Christ and serving righteousness? Why should our hearts be saying, I will never go back there? Why? Well, look at where each road leads. Look at where each road leads. Take the road of lawlessness Paul says, notice, it leads to greater lawlessness. Take the road of righteousness, notice what he says, it leads to sanctification. Remember, the word sanctification comes from the word for holy. So sanctification is holification. It's, it's us being made holy before God. So you have two ways of living. The road of lawlessness will lead you further away from being like Christ. But the road of righteousness will lead you into Christ-likeness. Give your body and your life to lawlessness and you will continue going down a dark spiral of disobedience until you are far away from God. You will prove yourself not to be one of His. Give your body and your life to His service and you will become more and more like Him. There is a family resemblance between parents and children. And all people will know that you are God's because you are looking more and more like your Father as you give yourself to His service. Friends, this very moment, your life is headed in one of those two directions. You are either becoming more like Christ right now or you are moving further and further away from Christ. Wickedness. There is no neutrality here. Which direction is your life headed? Paul opens up these things more in verses 20 through 22. Look at verse 20 with me. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Do you remember those days? Do you remember those days? Remember what it was like when you were a slave of sin? All you knew were these desires for sin? Nothing is good that does not proceed from faith and have the glory of God as its aim. 
So back then, there was not a single good desire within you. You just lived in sin. You swam in water that was just pure sin. You knew nothing different. You lived for yourself. You lived like the world. You lived like you were your own God. You were completely free from righteousness. You didn't love righteousness. You didn't care about righteousness. You didn't care about the commands of righteousness. Not for God's sake, anyway. You were free. You were were just living in sin. Now, remembering those days, Paul asks you a question in verse 21. So here's the question he asks us in verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? Paul assumes that when you look back on your old life, you're ashamed. Is he right to assume that? Is that true of you as a Christian? When you look back on your old life, there are things that you used to do for which you are now ashamed. He assumes that you look back on your days of self-centered, pride-based living with a sense of sorrow, with a sense of embarrassment that you could have ever been so foolish, that you could have ever been so wretched. But he asks you to think back on your old life anyway. And he wants you to answer this question. As you were living in sin, as you were obeying the sinful impulses within you, what kind of fruit was your life producing? What direction was your life headed in back then? Were people being blessed? Was God being honored? Were you being made more like Jesus? Or is it not true that people were being hurt by your actions? That people were being influenced by you away from Christ? Is it not true that when you look back at your life before Jesus, you see God being dishonored? Before you came to Christ, were you becoming more like Christ or less so? Some of you in here were quite young when you first believed on Jesus. Do not dismiss your sins as a young, unbelieving child as though they were something small. See them for what they were. Those of us who believed while we were young still had some years before our conversion when we lived in ways for which we ought to be ashamed. And we should not have to look very hard to see what direction our life was headed in if God's grace had not intervened. Whether we were younger or older, when we first believed, the same truth remains. Our lives, before our conversion, were bearing rotten fruit. Our lives were headed in a terrible direction. And where would we have ended up? had God not graciously intervened? You ever ask yourself that? Where would I be today had I not become a Christian? What kind of life would I be living now? I wonder what you would be doing on this Sunday morning if God had not changed your heart. Paul tells us at the end of verse 21 that the end of those things is death. And he's not talking about physical death, church. He's talking about eternal spiritual death. 
the experience of the wrath of God in hell for all eternity. That's where the road of lawlessness leads. That's where slavery to sin leads. That's where that path leads. And Paul's question is, Christian, why, oh why, do you want to go back there? Why would you be saying, now that I, my sins are forgiven, I can do that again? Why would you want to go back there? Do you want to be less like your Savior? A greater curse on your family? A tool in the hands of the devil in this world? Is that what you want? Why would you want death again? Look at verse 22. Verse 22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So giving yourself in obedience to sin leads to more and more sin, which leads to more and more sin, which causes your heart to become hardened and cold towards Christ. And in the end, sin leads you to hell. Giving ourselves in obedience to God leads to greater obedience to God. Leads to more and more righteousness. Leads to your heart being more and more in love with Christ. Leads to you being a greater blessing in this world. Leads to your sanctification and its end, eternal life. We will not reach perfection in this life. We know that, right? We're not going to reach perfection in this life. But as we give ourselves to the service of God in obedience to Him, we can become more and more like our Savior. You can grow as a blessing in this world. Do you want that? Do you want to be more useful to your Savior? Do you want to be a part of seeing His glory loved and known? As you get into a habit, a pattern, a lifestyle, of giving yourself more and more into obedience and service to God. Take my lips, take my tongue, take my eyes, take my hands, take my feet, take my Monday and my Tuesday and my time at home and my time at work. God, I'm using all of these. As you give yourself in obedience, the result is more and more obedience, more and more righteousness. You grow as a Christian. There is a very important doctrine that we see taught in these verses, and it's this. Sanctification requires action on our part. Your becoming holy, more like Jesus, requires action on your part. It is through verse 19, presenting your members as slaves of righteousness, giving yourselves in obedience to God. That's how sanctification happens happens God has designed sanctification in such a way that his spirit will work holiness into you as you obey you cannot live in disobedience and assume that God is making you holy and ready for heaven it is through your happy submission, through your good deeds, through your obedience, that God graciously works in you to make you holy. So, for example, God's Spirit will use the Bible to make you holy. But guess who has to choose to read it? 
You have to choose to hear the Word of God read or to hear the Word of God preached or to open it up at home. If you do not open up your Bible, if you do not read your Bible, if you do not listen to your Bible, if you do not expose yourself to the Bible, the Spirit is not working the Bible into your life. God's Spirit will use prayer to make you holy. But you must pray. You must give yourself to prayer or the Spirit will not give to you the spiritual benefits of prayer. I know many of us in this room, we're, we're good Calvinists. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe God's doing this. God's doing this. God's doing this. Yes, God is doing this. But that does not mean we do nothing. He does it through us. God's Spirit will use Christian conversation to make you holy. But you must choose to engage in Christian conversation. You cannot remain aloof from serious, loving Christian conversation and expect for the Spirit to give you the fruit of that in your life. Picture a farmer. I know I'm running out of time. I'm going fast. Just picture a farmer. The farmer plants his seeds and works the ground and does all he can to give his crops the best opportunity to grow. God must give the growth. God must give the sunshine. God must give the rain. God must be the one who ensures that no storm comes in and destroys the crops. The farmer has no control over the actual growth of the crops, but that farmer can do many, many things to give his crops the best opportunity for growth. And so the farmer should do everything he can to give his crops the best opportunity to grow, and then he should go get on his knees and pray. Wouldn't we think it funny to see a farmer who has done no farming but expects God to grow crops? The man has not done no tilling, no fertilizing. He's not even planted any seeds. The man just sits at home on his couch watching television. But he says, I'm a farmer and God's growing my crops. What would we say of that farmer? We'd say he's insane. We'd say he's mad in need of help. So also, we as Christians cannot make ourselves grow spiritually. We cannot give ourselves the growth, but we can obey our God. And we can give ourselves to God's service. We can present our members to Him, loving Him, submitting to Him, longing to be useful to Him. And as we seek to obey, God will work growth into us. If we are living in disobedience as Christians, we are living like the insane farmer who thinks he's farming when he's not farming. If we live in disobedience, we are Christians who are not actually Christians because we're not actually obeying Christ. God is not sanctifying us, and in the end, we will not have life but death. Faith shows itself in obedience. So the message of this passage is that we should embrace the gift of salvation purchased for us at the cross, that Jesus lived and died, that we would be sanctified, and now that we have received this gift of salvation in Jesus, and now that we have a new heart with new desires, let us give ourselves to these new desires. Let us pursue righteousness. 
Let us pursue the kingdom of God, happy and in love with our Savior, confident that He is working within us as we seek to obey. Let me close this morning with a call to faith. Because this is what will lead us to give ourselves to righteousness and obedience. We must love the Lord Jesus above all. We must be so enthralled with him that no other temptation can pull us away from his service. We must have such an overarching and undergirding love for Christ that every other aspect of our life falls in line with that love for Jesus. So that we love our families because we love Jesus. And we strive for excellence in our callings because we love Jesus. And we're kind and considerate to others because we love Jesus. Love for Jesus is the key. If you don't love Jesus, you won't have strong desires to serve Jesus. If you don't have strong desires to serve Jesus, you won't give yourself to the service of Jesus. If you don't give yourself to the service of Jesus, the Spirit won't work sanctification in you. You will not be holy on the last day. You will be lost. That's why if you say what most fundamentally is a Christian, a Christian is someone who loves Jesus. Everything else flows out of that. So does he have your heart? So why do I say a call to faith? Because it's as you grow in your trusting and believing what the Bible says about Jesus that you love him more. You read that in Christ Jesus your sins are forgiven. The more you believe that, the more you're going to love Jesus. You read and believe, Romans 8, 28, that because of Christ, God is working all things for your good. You believe that? The more you, the more you trust in that, the more you're going to love your Savior. The more you believe that Jesus is a good shepherd and that through him, surely goodness and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life. The more you believe that, the more you're going to love the Savior who makes that true. The more you believe that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 The more you are going to love your Savior. So dear friends, believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Put your roots deep in what the Bible says about Jesus. And as the more you believe it, the more you trust it, the more you'll love Him. And that'll lead to all the good things we've been talking about this morning. Let's pray.